Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, another truck hits an overpass, even with steeper penalties and longer fines. Why do we continue to see these incidents. Plus, culture wars. We look at the growing anti-Soji movement in our province, and we catch up with TransLink CEO Kevin Quinn as we look at the fast-growing demand for transit and the need for $21 billion for expansion over the next 10 years. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. First, let's look at uh, into that overpass incident from last night. Uh, the driver of the truck that slammed into an overpass in North Vancouver, uh, causing an overnight highway closure, fled the scene on foot. Uh, according to authorities, he just split the scene. How about that? Now, the North Vancouver RCMP say they were called to the scene at about 7 p.m. at Highway 1 at the Main Street overpass. The eastbound lanes of the highway were closed to traffic for eight hours due to concerns over structural uh, integrity. Uh, uh, since 2022, get this, and up to uh, June 14th, uh, there have been 22 commercial trucks which have crashed into highway overpasses. Most of those have been in the lower mainland. Now, Dave Earl, president of the BC Truckers Association, spoke to our Rob Fay on the Jill Bennett show earlier today. Uh, here's what he had to say. Since we really took a look at and developed a national training standard for commercial truck driver training uh, and implemented it in BC, I'm confident that people are getting the training. What worries me is what, what's happening in the field. I mean, first and foremost, I'm a little concerned that the driver hasn't turned up. Um, that's concerning because as much as somebody leaves the scene of an accident, that's a bad decision, and we all know that. I mean, that's drilled into us. Um, I hope that he's okay. Um, you know, I hope that he realizes that even if you make a mistake and something goes wrong, it'll be okay. There's no reason, you know, to, to run away and, and, and harm yourself, frankly. So I, I hope everything turns out on that one okay. Mm-hmm. There's more to it. It's not necessarily that people are just loading things up and saying, yippee, and off we go. Things happen. So when we look at the, the incident last time on Highway 99, that truck made it through the tunnel, but something happened between the tunnel and the overpass. So what happened? And that's part of the investigation. What's going on? What went on? What struck the overpass? How did this occur? When I look at this one, and I, I like everybody else, you look at the pictures online, I don't have any other insight. But I look at it and say, well, there's a wide load sign hanging off the back of the trailer that tells me that somebody along the line say, you know, this is a big load. We're going to have to do something. So the question becomes, what happened? What were the dimensions? What was the equipment choice? Was a permit pulled? All of those things come into play. That was Dave Earl, President and CEO of the BC Truckers Association, talking to our Rob Fay earlier today. He did mention there uh, the accident or the incident on Highway 99 that occurred uh, in uh, July. Uh, and to my understanding, they're going to begin work uh, on that overpass uh, in November. And uh, the work to repair that overpass uh, should go on up until next summer. Of course, significant damage caused in regards to that uh, incident. Joining me now to talk a little bit about... Uh, all these incidents, but particularly the one uh, in Delta, is Dylan Kruger, uh, City Councillor in the City of Delta. Dylan, thank you for joining us. 
Jazz, thanks for having me. Now, my understanding uh, that Highway 17A overpass, uh, which was hit by that big truck in July, it obviously will be repaired at a cost of one point four million dollars to to BC taxpayers, and that is just one of twenty two uh, overpass accidents since the twenty uh, since twenty twenty two. What do you think needs to happen here? Yeah, obviously we're seeing this happen more and more often and uh, it's very concerning i just want to speak to the the local impacts uh, we we finally after probably uh, seven or eight days uh, were able to reopen the overpass and we establish a full uh, east to west uh, connection across highway 99 mm-hmm. but for the better part of, of of close to two weeks with uh, one direction completely shut down there are businesses and residents on the other side of that overpass that were completely orphaned uh, they saw huge hits to their revenue, their bottom line, uh, residents that uh, had severe, sometimes up to 30, 40-minute, uh, hour-long delays to get simply across the highway to where the hospital is, to where schools are, uh, to where other essential services are. This was a huge disruption in people's lives, not to mention, as you highlighted, the millions of dollars in taxpayer money that will go to fix this, uh, this overpass over the course of a year. Uh, this particular overpass in Delta was also one, ironically, that the province had just finished a multi-million dollar uh, retrofit of. So that work had just completed. The paint had barely dried uh, just a few weeks ago uh, prior to the, the incident. So we're very concerned uh, at, at our council and other mayors and councils across uh, the region are. Mm-hmm. We know that, uh, that truck drivers must measure uh, their load before uh, leaving their site. If it's, an, if it's an oversized load, they're supposed to take designated routes for oversized loads uh, and to have the, the, the drivers in this case get essential or, or the companies that they work for basically get a slap on the wrist and a, and a very small nominal fine is, uh, is very concerning to us. Do you think increasing the fines simply will make a difference or do you think there's, there's a deeper structural problem there? I know, I, you know Dave Earl's been talking about, he thinks the training is there. I, I would argue, I see so many of these new private trucking uh, schools open up, and I'm just wondering, are they teaching the right things, number one? Number two, are the employers demanding that that, that core safety uh, culture that needs to be in every, every company? I mean, what do you think, the, how do we solve this? Is it just a case of just increasing the penalties? Well, I think the companies, it's more than the, just the drivers themselves. It's the companies that they work for that have to be liable here. We heard, uh, we've heard interviews from drivers who felt that they themselves uh, were not qualified and put in certain situations that they felt uncomfortable with. So uh, if there are companies that are serial offenders here, it's the companies themselves that, that should be held liable. And, and you know, perhaps licenses uh, need to be pulled or certain metrics need to come in place. But the burden on local communities, uh, especially one like ours, where there's one, one way in, one way out uh, of of that part of Ladner, mm-hmm. and to have an entire community shut off, businesses and residents, uh, seniors who can't get to their doctor's appointments, uh, it's simply unacceptable. Yeah. Uh, Dylan, thank you for your time today. Thanks, Jazz. Anytime. Well, let's uh, uh, look at Libya for a moment. Day-long communication outages uh, in eastern Libya further complicated the work of teams searching for bodies under, under the rubble uh, and at sea. Now, internet and phone services were knocked out with residents and journalists unable to reach those in the city of Dirna. And as you know, heavy rains triggered deadly flooding across eastern Libya earlier this month. The storm 
actually overwhelmed two dams in the early hours of September 11th, sending a wall of water several meters high through the center of Dirna, destroying entire neighborhoods and sweeping people out to sea. Uh, the floods inundated as much as a quarter of the city. Uh, there have been a variety of uh, numbers when it comes to uh, the death toll. Uh, government officials and ad- agencies have said the death toll right now is somewhere between 4,000 to over 11,000 people, and at least 40,000 people, people were displaced uh, in the area. Joining me now to talk a little bit about um, those here in British Columbia and across Canada wanting to help uh, their fellow uh, Libya, Libyan residents is Dr. Naja Adrik. She's a clinical researcher at BC Children's Hospital and she's collaborating with the Islamic Relief Canada to support the people of Libya. Uh, Dr. Adrik, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Uh, what are you hearing uh, from Libya, uh, from your friends and families and contacts? Yeah, so um, just like uh, it's been two weeks since this uh, natural disaster happened in Libya, although I live here far away, but the impact and magnitude of this disaster affecting all of us and not any Libyan in the whole country or in the in the world has facing a lot of challenging and loss of uh, of of people who they loved or the or relative from far so what i hear from there it's heartbreaking story like uh, i don't know if people can um, like estimate uh, or comprehend the magnitude of this disaster derna is a small city in the eastern part of libya and then, like in libya we live in in a large population like you could have the entire family two generations living in the same area and when this floods happen, a lot of people have lost their family through generation. Like imagine from the grandmother and father output to the niece and nephews and grandsons. So people at one night in few hours, like they lost their entire family and only maybe one person or two left from this, um, left alone in this catastrophe, graving their beloved one while they're trying to help uh, rescue other people who are um, who have been stuck under the river. So what I heard from the news, like um, from the story people who, who contact me or uh, I, I call them to to ask uh, what's happening with them, they they are in shock, they are in complete shock. Like imagine you you wake up and you find like 40, per, 40 pe- people from your family lost at once. Mm-hmm. And their children that lost their parents and they left alone um, in this uh, in this catastrophe, and like even people from different kind different part of Libya, like they they running like they're rushing to help, but at the same time we 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 are under the shock because it's never happened uh, in Libya. People describe it as more than worse than war, and doesn't compare to anything happened in Libya before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is there a, a work now being put uh, here in, in, in the Vancouver area in regards to providing any uh, donations, food, whatever it may be? Uh, is there a campaign to, 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 to get help as much or whatever help they can get to, to Libya? Yeah, so the, the, good, the good part of this um, or the silver lining of this, um, of this situation, like people in Libya and outside Libya, they 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 unite together to provide help even without any political like involvement or government involvement people are out of their good heart and and trying to help as much as they can 
So there's a lot of individual campaign that happen uh, that uh, like uh, raised by people who are originally from Derna and uh, to support families there. And I cooperate with Islamic Relief Canada to start a campaign to raise awareness and raise funding for this. And I've been like uh, beyond grateful for all my friends who are in Canada who contributed to my campaign and trying to help to provide uh, funding for that. Mm-hmm. Also, I, I cooperate with the Vancouver Aid Group, which is um, organization that um, that collect medical supply from uh, Vancouver Coastal Health uh, to send some medical supply that might need it uh, to be there. And around Canada and I think most of the countries, uh, Libyan, they try to to help and all the community around them, they tr- they're trying to support. And I think what we, we, we really need now there um, beside like medical aids, um, finding shelter, clean water, and providing psychological support for people because um, it's it's beyond um, beyond like imagination uh, how people could could cope with this uh, with losing their beloved ones at once. So I think mental health is it's it's uh, extremely affected, and we 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 need to keep this in mind when we're providing help because um, all the like the physical like uh, aids could help. Uh, elevate the, the like elevate the situation, but we still need to with to deal with mental mental health for these affected people. Yeah, there's been tremendous impact, of course, um, uh, on the people because of this flood. Uh, last time I was in Libya, and it's been quite a long time, was during the Arab Spring. Uh, I was in Tripoli, um, mm-hmm. as many years now. Uh, how has the country? Uh, how has the country uh, been coping in a post-Arab Spring world? There's a lot of changes. There was various factions there. Even before there's flood, there was a lot of challenges in regards to governance. Uh, how is the country? How was the country doing prior to this flood? Yeah, I we are like we try to uh, recover. You know what? I I I I, all, I usually go to Libya every year. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I live in Tripoli. Uh, and the last time I've been there, it was last, ju- last July. And it's been, uh, so there, there's, the country is recovering. There's a lot of uh, political instability. But the good thing about people is just like they're trying to to like to gain their life back. Um, the last time I went, um, there's more stability because there's no ongoing war um, as it used to be before. Mm-hmm. And people that start try to regain their their life but uh, as you may aware like the infrastructure is affected very much and uh, especially those who are living in like um, not the major cities and I think um, the floods and the floods were were like the like the last uh, straw and in, in the camel I don't know if they have this proverb uh, 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 in your language I mean just like emphasize the needs for uh, for uh, better um, uh, quality of life for people who live there, better like uh, infrastructure, mm-hmm. building houses, and try people to reunite together because um, I don't go in political, but um, this this uh, this uh, situation with the flood in Derna, we're able to reunite the country again, like people from the West and uh, the South and all city in Libya were able to they 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 rushed to Darna to help, forgetting all the conflicts and all the 
uh, different like different political views just to help their their people and i hope this is could be uh, yeah this will be the um, the the thing that uh, reunite them and um, maybe the the beginning of new start mm -hmm. and hopefully like we we re, we re uh, regain our country uh, to the uh, best future for all of us Nadja, uh, I know it's a very difficult time. I really appreciate you making time for us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jace. Thank you for having me. The protests against schools teaching children about gender and sexual diversity occurred across British Columbia today. You're hearing some of the sounds from a protest uh, in downtown Vancouver at the Art Gallery uh, this morning. There are also counter-protesters at that very uh, event as well. The events occurred in Kamloops and Kelowna. Uh, the rallies were prompted by a group called One Million March for Children, whose posters say participants are standing against uh, gender ideology in schools, which refers to, of course, uh, the teaching of the sexual orientation and gender identity, or SOGI programs, in our public schools. Uh, now, these protests are also not only opposing health and sex ed curriculums, but gender-neutral washrooms and queer-friendly uh, events, moves that in many ways mirror a similar trend uh, in the United States. Joining me now to talk about the issue, issue of sex education, SOGI, and culture wars in our classrooms is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter, who happens to be in Vancouver today covering the UBCM meetings this week. Richard, thank you for joining us. I really wish I could be there in studio jazz, but I've got to talk to the education minister in a few minutes. But it is nice being in the same city as you, that's for sure. Yeah, you're just a few blocks away, but I understand because, I mean, literally you have every municipal politician in town today or this week and uh, provincial politicians uh, are there as well. Uh, so a lot of meetings going on, a lot of big issues from housing to sex education going on. So lots to do down there. I know you're very busy. So walk me through here. Uh, what was sort of the general response to it, what's been occurring across this country in this province? at the UBCM in regards to this conversation around sex education and SOGI especially? Yeah, so I've spoken to leadership in all four political parties, major political parties, and there is a consensus from three of them, BC United, BC NDP, and the Greens, that SOGI is an important resource to have in the classroom. Uh, they have condemned the violence that we've seen at sometimes today at the protests. Uh, they have uh, express support for the counter-protest, those supporting LGBTQ plus communities, those uh, supporting SOGI and trans rights and that conversation in the classroom. And then there are the conservatives. And, and we know that John Rustad, the leader of the party, just earned official party status. And one of his first policy pieces here is uh, he said this morning that he would get rid of SOGI in classrooms uh, if he becomes the premier. And the other thing that he has spoken to, and you mentioned this, is the idea of gender bathrooms. And one of the things he told me today was that uh, he would ensure that in a school setting, somebody who is born a male uh, but could identify as a female or be transitioning to a female must use either a male bathroom or a gender-neutral bathroom. And what he said is that they're hearing stories of situations in schools where people are in the bathroom and someone comes in that doesn't look the same gender as them uh, and they go home crying. Well, we've also heard stories about that same individual who goes into the bathroom and people are pointing at them and calling them names and that individual who is transitioning or maybe transgender, uh, they run home crying as well. So it is... Um, a challenging issue 
that I think is getting convoluted here, mm -hmm. but the conservatives have made it clear where they stand. And just let me briefly read a quote that will be in my story tonight on the news hour. Rustad said, it's creating friction, certainty among teachers and parents in the system. I think we need to take those things out of the system in reference to Soji. So um, it's a politicization of an issue that for a long time has been in some ways on the afterburner jazz, but mm -hmm. from what we've seen down South and what we've seen as part of these rallies, it now seems to be back into the political discourse here in BC. Is this a vocal minority at the end of the day though? I mean, it, absolutely. It is. Absolutely. It is. And I, and I think there is nuance here and BC United leader, Kevin Falcon got caught in that nuance yesterday, but he's raised significant issues here. Parents are concerned that they are not getting the proper communication from the schools and teachers about sexual education, what their kids are learning, what conversations are happening. But that's different than blowing Soji up and starting again. And I think the idea of getting rid of this program that supports families, supports teachers, provides really significant resources around anti-bullying, around gender, around sexuality – largely the vast majority of people support that where it becomes a little bit more challenging is that issue that parents want to ensure they are getting more information about the types of sexual education being learned in the school. And yes, SOGI one, two, three curriculum is available online. Those resources are available, mm -hmm. but in some cases, teachers are teaching away from that guidance and parents want to ensure that they are getting that information uh, and ensuring they know what their kids are learning in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, I can understand the politicization of this. I mean, I, I, mean, I say this as a parent uh, with a child who went through elementary school and now is in, 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 in high school. Uh, and, I, and I've seen the process so far. And, and as a parent, I'm, I'm very comfortable with it. But as an MLA, I recall even you know, a small amount of, uh, of uh, constituents coming to want to talk about SOGI. And, and some of them, you know, it's just providing the information. And you, know, you don't have to agree with people, but you know, it's a reasonable conversation. You have a job as an MLA to, to serve those, all people, whether they vote for you or not. Uh, but you would occasionally, I think one or two that came into my office, it was just all political. Like they just don't like it, and, and I respect that. But they want it shut down. What are you going to do to shut it down? And then there's just no way you could have a conversation with, people, with these individuals. Right. Um, and, and, and it seems to me when you look at our school boards now, uh, and if you go on YouTube, you can see you know school board meetings in Surrey that were disrupted uh, by these individuals. I, you know, there's one. There are other uh, uh, school districts in, in the interior. We have the Mission School District chair joining us at 5:30 on uh, to talk about that very issue in Soji uh, today. Uh, you see the Mission as well. I mean, uh, is there a middle ground in this, or is this a case where you just, as a legislator, and as people say, we're putting our foot down? The educate the the research says this is the right way to go. We're going to go in that way. Educational experts say this. We're not taking your rights away as a parent, but I'm sorry, but we disagree here, and that's that. Yeah, and this is one of those tricky ones, is ultimately the answer to your question is yes. But politicians are trying to be nuanced here, and they hear concerns that run the gamut from what you were speaking about. I don't believe in this. I will never believe in this. I don't agree with this, too. I need to see more communication, more clarity. And that's where Kevin Falcon got tripped up a little bit yesterday mm -hmm. in trying to explain this issue that, you know, in Saskatchewan, they're moving to a system where parents must consent to a student learning specific things in sexual education. And yes, I know I have kids in the system too. We get the emails when our kids are doing sexual education, mm -hmm. but there's no consent here. You know, I have my child in a school system. I put trust in the teachers and the administrators to run that school well, and I allow them to teach my kids. And then as a parent, 
I teach my kids as well. Every day we have conversations about everything in life. And that may include conversations around sexual orientation and sex education. And I think striking that balance is really hard for politicians because, as you know, legislation is legislation. Law is law. There are lines written on a piece of paper where something like this, having a dialogue about sexual orientation and what's enshrined in legislation is more complicated. We all should agree that human rights need to be protected. Trans rights need to be protected. Young people need to be protected as they learn and, and navigate their way through, you know, puberty and sexual education. This is hard stuff, weighty stuff on these kids. And, and politicians often muddy that up. And I think we do need to have a dialogue about parents, but going as far as Saskatchewan and parental approval, it's something Kevin Falcon won't yet broach. BC NDP have, have ruled all of that out. They, they don't believe that's something that we that we need here in British Columbia. Hmm. Well, I, I I suspect this will be the last we hear of this issue because it is growing <laughs> and not. building and heading into a, a, a election year next year, and I'm sure it'll be part of the conversation as well. Richard, thank you for your time today. My pleasure as always, Jazz. We'll see you soon. Today, India urged its uh, nationals not to visit Canada amid a worsening diplomatic crisis uh, following uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, saying that New Delhi was involved in the killing of a Sikh leader here in BC. Uh, Mr. Trudeau on Monday said that Ottawa had credible intelligence uh, intelligence uh, that India carried out the fatal shooting in mid-June of Hadeep Singh Nijar uh, and uh, that uh, New Delhi uh, has today also urged students to exercise extreme caution when they are uh, coming to Canada. India is also the largest source of international students to Canada with Indians making up about 40% of all overseas students. So they're a major source of income uh, for the education sector here in BC and and across the country, Ontario, in fact. I think it was last week a report came out that international students are now putting the same amount of dollars into the education system, the college system there, as much as the Ontario government. So our education system does rely heavily on those international students, specifically India. Now, before going public with its claims, Ottawa did brief Washington and a number of our key allies. But so far, they've taken a cautious approach by expressing concern, but not certainly condemning India. Joining me now to talk a little bit about all that has transpired this week in regards to uh, Canada-India relations uh, is Warren Kinsella. He's a Toronto-based lawyer, author and consultant and former special assistant to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. Warren, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, my friend. Yeah, so tell me your thoughts uh, on, on everything that's transpired here since Monday. Uh, you know, I, I can understand why the Prime Minister did what he did, but uh, I'm just wondering what the repercussions are going to be over the longer term, and how do we respond as a country? Well, I, as you know, I'm no fan of uh, the Prime Minister, but I really don't think he had any choice mm-hmm. um, but to take the position that he did. Um, you know, if it is a fact that Indian agents uh, came to Canada in June of this year and and murdered uh, this man in a place of worship, in a parking lot uh, at his temple, like, uh, we just can't ignore that. I mean, it, it's not something that we would ignore if it just involved Canadians for this you know, a, a, an extrajudicial assassination is extraordinary by any standard. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the way in which India has reacted so far is not encouraging. You know, the statement that you referred to a minute ago, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to quote, this is what India said today. Um, quote, there are growing anti-India activities and politically condoned 
hate crimes and criminal violence, end quote, in Canada. Hmm. Well, all of us are in Canada, and I don't think that's true. Um, you know, they, I think the smartest thing that India could have done after this extraordinary allegation was made by the prime minister on Monday would be to say, no, uh, we dispute that. And we welcome any investigation to clear our name mm -hmm. and uh, we're going to cooperate fully. But instead, you know, they're just doing rhetorical overkill and making these extraordinary statements and it, it's not encouraging. And, you know, our allies, as you point out, mm -hmm. they're not exactly um, rushing to condemn India. But, you know, Australia, for example, at the United Nations today uh, indicated that they found the allegations very concerning. They've raised them with India. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say what, how India reacted. So it, it's not a case like some commentators are suggesting that our allies have abandoned us. Far from it. But I think everybody's saying the same thing, whether they're a fan of Trudeau or not. OK, uh, we need to see some evidence because this allegation is a serious one. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, we, we and I have talked about this when the killing happened before all this evidence came out. And, and it certainly looked like, a, you know, a very organized uh, hit at the end of the day for me. And when I look at this and even looking at it in a much broader in a broader way, is that, you know, you have an economy here in a country here inside, with India that is growing uh, significantly. And, and they're sort of at that point where the same as China, where they just, you know, it was rocket fuel and the economy grew significantly over the course of a five to 10 years. They're on the cusp of that. I think they're very close to being the third largest economy in the world in the next three to four years. My sense is, and I'm not saying it's the right thing, obviously, but I, my sense is it's a country that will not let any individual, any group, anybody asking, pushing for independence in any sort of way will get in the way of this country and its uh, establishment saying we are going to be one of the superpowers in this world and we will not allow any force to get in the way of that. And that includes Canadians uh, who are protesting or want uh, an independent Sikh state. Um, they will also point to the fact that in Air India, uh, there was an Air India bombing here in this country and we still have not been able to... Uh, charge and find those involved guilty at the end of the day. And we cannot trust Canada. And we are going to do what is needed to protect our nation, our sovereignty, and ultimately allow our economy to grow. We're not jeopardizing anybody to scare away any investors at the end of the day. I mean, there seems to me there's that cold thinking there, uh, and they will deal with the repercussions, whatever they may be. Well, I mean, that, that's the thing. All of us are hoping that that, you know, cool, sober thought um, was pursued by uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and his foreign affairs minister, Jolie, mm -hmm. before they made the allegations they did. Like, for them to make such an extraordinary statement uh, on the basis of rumor and innuendo would be reckless beyond belief, and I, and I think it would be the end of their government. Mm -hmm. like, it just would be an extraordinary allegation uh, to make. So... I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, as I guess many of our allies uh, around the world are doing, and saying, as Australia did today, that Canada says it has evidence that is credible. You know, the, the, the problem we've got is the one you just pointed out. We picked a fight, or we're, or we're being picked upon, by the largest democracy in the world. And, uh, you know, a growing economy, uh, China's is shrinking. China's in considerable economic difficulty. And India is moving to the forefront, as The Economist and others have noted in recent weeks. You know, Joe Biden, uh, the U.S. president, has been working overtime 
to curry favor with the leadership in India. So that's problem number one. Uh, and, and problem number two is, you know, this is another big country like China that that is seemingly got us in a, in their sights. And um, that is problematic for us with the economy we've got, and the other difficulties we've got at the present time. So, like, we needed this like a hole in the head. But unfortunately, it's it's real. Right. It's just uh, we cannot erase Monday. Like it, this is one that is going to live in history, mm-hmm. and I hope to hell that they've got the evidence to back it up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is a difficult one to answer. You know that the South Asian community plays a significant role in all elections, a reactive community, uh, even more so in federal elections um, for the federal liberals have always courted that vote. Uh, how do you think this will play out? Some have said that Mr. Trudeau coming out, making these comments, in many ways it'll solidify that uh, South Asian vote, particularly the Sikh vote uh, in Toronto and in Vancouver. Uh, others have said he's in trouble anyway. I don't think this is going to help much. Do you think this helps him in the next election, just within these diaspora communities? In some seats in the lower mainland, maybe parts of Calgary, parts of Edmonton, um, you know, and certainly in Toronto. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, Pierre Polyev and Jagmeet Singh are alive to the issue as well. You know, all three of them after this um, state, well, prior to the statement being made for the prime minister, prime minister, let them know what he was about to say. And Polyev issued an excellent statement saying, look, you know, politics is politics, but we're all Canadians and we cannot stand for this allegation, this possibility that a foreign power has sent agents here to murder a Canadian citizen, Mm -hmm. because that's what it's all about. And Jigmeet Singh made similar noises. So I don't think it's going to accrue to anybody's benefit per se, but definitely the one who has uh, taken the first step in a way that can't be called you know, cowardly. Uh, it's been it's actually kind of courageous uh, the, what the prime minister has done and stepped up and made this allegation. He has to have known what it would mean for trade with India, which is now ground to a halt. You know, diplomatic relations with India, reputationally, he had to have known what the impact would be. But he went ahead and made the allegation anyway. Yeah, that is for sure. Warren, as always, thank you, my friend. Thanks, my friend. Take care. At the UBCM uh, this week, the Union of BC Municipalities Annual Convention, the Mayor's Council on Regional Transportation warned uh, provincial officials uh, that time is running out when it comes to funding or finding new funding for public transit here uh, in the Lower Mainland because riding, ridership is beginning to surge once again in this uh, post-COVID environment. Uh, new data from TransLink shows that overcrowding of its system is going to rapidly worsen. By 2025, almost 4 in 10 rush hour bus trips will be severely overcrowded. Uh, The Mayor's Council uh, did talk about the fact the need for $21 billion, $21 billion uh, in new spending over the next 10 years is what the system needs. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about the transit system is Kevin Quinn, the CEO of TransLink. Mr. Quinn, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So uh, before we begin our conversation about TransLink and its future, can you give me a snapshot of of where TransLink is right now in a sort of a post-COVID environment? I know last time you and I chatted, uh, I, I don't think the numbers were at, at, at that point back up to pre-COVID levels. Give me a snapshot of where TransLink is today. 
Sure. So, uh, so sitting here today, and you know, we just got some new numbers in from a couple weeks ago. Uh, we're at about 90% ridership recovery uh, compared to pre-pandemic levels. Um, that's pretty high. It's actually leading North America. And, and while um, I think uh, I'm really proud of those numbers, uh, this region should be proud of the way that we've kind of returned to transit. Uh, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because we are also seeing some severe overcrowding uh, throughout our system as riders uh, have really come back. And so in areas like Surrey and Vancouver, especially during those peak times, we are seeing some pretty severe uh, overcrowding. So people have come back to the system in a big way, um, both during the weekdays and the weekends. We've, of course, seen some, some differences in travel patterns. But you know, when we do our surveys, when we take a look at our data, it's, it's uh, the same people that were riding before are back on the system. They're just traveling in, in slightly different ways. And, and you could probably attribute that remaining 10% of ridership to things like hybrid work patterns. That's probably a, a you know, a permanent fixture of our, our, our work life these days. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in regards to the broader issue of funding, uh, for the moment, and we'll get into sort of the need of uh, w- w- of the future here. Uh, so far, and this is a little out of left field, and I'll admit that, in regards to the EV population growing, every time I see somebody say, oh, one of my friends saying they bought an EV or people talking about buying an EV, yeah. I also remind myself in the back of it, well, you're not going to be paying for fuel, which means you're not paying the TransLink tax, which is 17 cents a liter, mm-hmm. uh, which funds our transit system. Uh, are you noticing a difference in your funding yet in regards to just the dollars coming from that fuel tax? Yeah, so, uh, so it's, a, it's a great point you've raised. And, you know, here's the thing. EVs uh, help us reduce greenhouse gas emissions. In and of themselves, that transition from fossil-fueled cars to electric vehicles is a good thing and helps reduce uh, GHGs in our atmosphere. Um, that said, you've identified a, a, a real um, paradox of our funding stream, which is that, you know, essentially the more that people drive, the more... Uh, revenue from fuel tax, TransLink brings in. Uh, and, and so, you know, up to this point, um, when our projections are really showing a decline in that revenue source and that fuel tax revenue source, as uh, more EVs hit the road, uh, as more fuel efficient vehicles are hitting the road, and so um, our fuel tax is beginning to decline. Uh, and so, you know, there's a real rethinking of the fuel tax that's, that we need to have. Uh, and that's not just with us, but that's with transportation authorities all across North America. You know, the fact is that for generations, uh, a fuel tax is how we have funded transportation, uh, transportation investments throughout North America. And that is a model that with the switch to EVs and more fuel efficient cars, that's not a model that works anymore. And so we've got to have a bigger conversation about how we fund and how we look at transit and really starting to think about transit as an investment in communities and in housing and unlocking housing opportunities uh, because investments in transit uh, aren't just about that transit operations itself. It's about making our, our communities more livable. Mm. Uh, do you know how much money TransLink off the top of your head, how much TransLink gets from that fuel tax? Uh, off the top of my head, I think it's around um, $400 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might have to confirm that. Point. Okay, roughly that much. Okay. Um, and at this point, uh, obviously, we haven't hit critical mass, but we're getting there pretty quick with these EVs. Um, look, let's look forward to Vancouver for a moment here. 100,000 people moved here last year. We don't expect those numbers to be any different this year. Um, out of curiosity, what's where are your fastest growing areas in regards to just demand that you see? Is it Surrey? Is it the Valley? Or is it sort of central Vancouver? Vancouver, I'm curious. 
Yeah, so we're, we're right now seeing the largest amount of growth um, south of the Fraser. So um, City of Langley, Langley Township, um, uh, Surrey, Delta. Uh, so a lot of these areas, are we are starting to see tremendous growth. Uh, and, and those are areas that have come back faster than other parts of the region um, from a ridership perspective. So, for example, you know, today Surrey, uh, is at about 120% ridership recovery. So, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, I, I noted that 90% number. That's a system-wide average. But that really depends uh, based on what part of the region you're in geographically. And so Surrey is certainly uh, leading the pack, if you will, with about 120% ridership recovery. So it's 20% more people on transit than before the pandemic hit, which is quite incredible. Again, though, that's where we're also seeing severe overcrowding. And we've done as best as we can to adjust service to meet the demand that's out there. But even in doing so, even in adding 12% more bus service in Surrey over the past couple of years, as we've seen that uh, demand return, uh, we can't keep up. And uh, we are starting to see those overcrowding conditions. Uh, and we're show we have modeling really showing that, you know, without additional investment in transit, you know, that overcrowding is going to be five or six times higher uh, in 2025 than it is today. Hmm. Uh, now, the price tag that was presented uh, uh, by uh, at UBCM uh, by the Mayor's mm-hmm. Council in regards to the ambitious plan, obviously you'd have a very important role to play in that conversation, uh, was $21 billion uh, over 10 years in regards to uh, for transit, uh, tra- to deal with transit growth in our region. Can you break that down and sort of where you see this growth, what kind of things the system needs to be doing and, and building mm-hmm. and expanding upon? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, yesterday um, the the Mayor's Council on Regional Transportation was was at the Union of BC Municipalities Convention and really came together to urge uh, the provincial and federal governments to commit funding for uh, the the Access for Everyone plan, that uh, $21 plus billion transit expansion plan that really um, lays out what uh, we think the region needs from an expansion standpoint and includes some really important things like uh, doubling bus service in our region, uh, like building nine new bus rapid transit lines, increasing funding for active transportation. Um, all of these things that we know the region needs when, you know, we especially, you know, when we when we know the region is growing by at least 50,000 people a year, uh, so many people coming to this region and, and again, already seeing those those overcrowding conditions. I think you know, one of the key messages that the mayor's council was really bringing yesterday is around this tie between transit and housing and affordability, right? So, you know, transit expansion, again, isn't just about the transit. It's about enhancing access to new affordable housing developments. It's about better serving uh, existing communities where we can increase frequencies that, you know, give people a good, reliable transit option to leave the car at home, uh, you know, and essentially delays in expanding transit really just makes it um, more difficult for councils and developers to expand housing, the housing that we know our region really needs. And so that was really the crux of of, uh, the the message yesterday is, you know, this uh, transit, uh, investment in transit is a great way to address not just the the transportation crisis, but also the housing crisis that we know we've had and um, meet our climate goals at the same time. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's really coming together and recognizing that transit does open that door uh, to housing. We are speaking to TransLink CEO Kevin Quinn. We're talking about uh, the growth of TransLink and the fact that our region is growing significantly. In fact, uh, almost 4 in 10 rush hour bus trips will be severely overcrowded by 2025. Uh, mayors in the region have said that the region needs to spend about $21 billion on transit over the next 10 years. Now, speaking of that $21 billion over 10 years, it, of course, is very ambitious, very expensive. Uh, Mr. Quinn, has there been any talk of the federal government being engaged in this conversation? Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the federal government's been uh, a really important partner for us, um, certainly in helping to fund uh, our, our previous expansion plan, which included big projects like the, the Surrey Langley SkyTrain and the Broadway SkyTrain extensions. And I also just want to note that, you know, we have just such a strong partnership with the province who has done so much to provide um, op- operating funding for TransLink to enable us to keep our service levels high. And that's something that a lot of other provinces didn't do, but we've been so fortunate um, here in BC to, to have such a, a transit supportive um, province. And so we're extremely appreciative for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we're at a point where, um, you know, we've got a, uh, we're looking you know, to the province and the federal government to, to make some commitments towards this access for everyone plan. And, uh, that was really the purpose behind that announcement today. We, you know, I'll also just note that, um, you know, we did some surveying work that really also showed that, uh, you know, three quarters of Metro Vancouver residents believe it's crucial that uh, governments are proactive in building transit in response to population growth. You know, the region's um, really behind us. They recognize the region. Uh, our riders recognize the, the need for more transit. I think the region recognizes it as well. So it's it's a collective uh, responsibility with really mutual goals. Hmm. Uh, are other regions having difficulty, whether in Canada or say, other cities, having difficulty in regards to uh, just attracting uh, people back? You did say you, you, the TransLink is doing better than the vast majority yeah. uh, in, in North America. What are the challenges they're having in other cities? I'm just curious uh, because, you know, our numbers are moving in the right direction. I'm mm-hmm. curious as to why other yep. cities are struggling. Sure. I, well, you know, so first, uh, you know, I'll just reiterate, I think first we were extremely lucky to have the support of the province, which allowed us to keep service levels um, basically at 100 uh, percent service levels throughout the pandemic. There's a lot of cities in North America uh, that cut service, that, that laid off uh, uh, bus operators, for example. And then when they tried to bring back service, they've had difficulty hiring bus operators and getting that service back on the street. So by by continuing that service throughout the pandemic, providing that transit service for essential workers, um, uh, we were able to retain, uh, you know, a lot of trust in the system. I think we we also were quite nimble in um, in our, our adjustments that we made throughout the pandemic uh, to uh, meet the the service where demand was. And so I think that was important as well. But uh, you know, other systems, whether it's trying to get service back or, or operator shortages, things like that. A lot of uh, systems are facing similar uh, issues and getting that ridership back. Uh, I think we've been extremely um, lucky and quite well positioned here in BC to get riders back and well positioned now for expansion. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I was using uh, the Canada line last week. Uh, I recall my early days of report covering covering the... uh, 
debate on funding that Canada line. It got very political, as it does in these things. And I think it took three votes, yeah. even though we had federal, provincial, and I think Bombardier or private sector dollars going into it as well. It runs very well. Uh, um, I'm just curious. There's been talk of potentially an at-grade at line in the Fraser Valley going all the way to the Scott Road station. This is also, at this point, very early stages and uh, no commitment whatsoever. Um, can our system work with an at-grade system with the present SkyTrain system that we have, or do you think over the long term we're going to continue to build out our SkyTrain system because it is so interconnected, it works very well, uh, and it's generally been a success in, in, in this city, or do you think there is room for some more at-grade systems like a West Coast Express, perhaps to augment the system? And in many ways, it's cheaper as well to, to, uh, to, to, uh, to build uh, compared to a SkyTrain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know the SkyTrain has been um, so successful, and we've got good projects underway like the Surrey Langley SkyTrain and, and the Broadway Subway project, and eventually, um, I think the hope is you know an extension out to UBC. Uh, whether that's uh, you know above ground, um, elevated or or underground, I, you know has really yet to be determined. But uh, you know what you're really getting at though is you know, a key part of any kind of alternative analysis that's going to do a cost-benefit analysis of, of what makes the most sense from a project perspective. And so, um, you know, I'd say for our part, we've really focused on getting those projects, um, uh, focusing on those projects that can be done quickly. So, you know, our Access for Everyone plan, for example, identifies bus rapid transit. Uh, one of the main reasons it does is, is it's much more cost-effective than um very expensive rail systems, and it can also be done faster. So, you know, I guess, you know, in, in response to your question, I, I would note that, you know, in all of our public surveys we've done, what we've heard from the public is they want solutions now. They they don't want big, expensive uh, lines. They want solutions today. They, they don't want something 10 years from now. They are facing an affordability crisis today. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are rapid transit solutions that we can roll out today that you can also build in such a way as not to preclude um, future transition to, say, a rail system. Um, so, you know, I guess what I'd say is in the short term, you know, we're really focused on those solutions that we can roll out very, very fast uh, that give people the solutions they need today. And, you know, we always keep our eyes open for things we can upgrade it to in the future. Mr. Quinn, uh, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to chatting with you soon on this very important issue because I know there's a lot of questions in regards to where we're headed with transit and TransLink. Look forward to seeing you in the studio very soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Let's revisit uh, one of our top stories today. There are protests uh, against school school teaching children about gender and sexual diversity, uh, which occurred across BC today, while counter-protests uh, supporting inclusions in classrooms occurred as well uh, here in downtown uh, Vancouver. In many cases, the counter-protesters vastly outnumbered those who were uh, protesting the sexual orientation and gender identity programs in our public schools. Many have said this is uh, basically a reminder that the culture wars of the United States have come across this border and more and more are being played out at our, in our classrooms and our school district meetings as well. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the importance of SOGI in schools is uh, Shelley Carter. She's the chair of the Mission School Board. Ms. Carter, thank you for joining us today. Thanks. Hi, uh, Johal. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much. Uh, tell me, first and foremost, just uh, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, uh, not only in your community, but across this province and country. Your thoughts just on these protests and counter-protests. Well, it's that definitely interesting times. Um, 
you know, since the last time we talked, we haven't had very many disruptions at our board meetings. But I, um, I find that now we're seeing more um, uh, them coming out to public events. Uh, we had a large pride event mm-hmm. um, that was in mission, and uh, they were there to take pictures. They were targeting um, our uh, teachers and our principal that was our, there, our soji leads in our district, and just, you know, trying to, you know, just be disruptive. And it's, it's just very upsetting, mm-hmm. you know, that they, they, they kind of sort of spew this hate speech. Mm-hmm. And uh, also with, uh, I'm also belong to Rotary, and again, we're seeing that with the community groups. Um, uh, I would imagine not just Mission, but across the province as well, that uh, because we're advocates for inclusivity and, um, you know, we work for everybody in the community, that we're being, um, those type of groups are being targeted as well. So. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's important to have the SOGI programs in our schools? And you talk about inclusivity. Why do you think these programs are important? Well, you you if you go out and you talk to students and that have you know uh, diverse needs, um, and we talked about equity mm-hmm. and uh, inclusivity to make everyone feel safe. And so SOGI is a really good. For support systems, uh, the staff totally um, are supportive of it. Um, we have um, overwhelming support from our parents and the community at large. And you know, we also we want to support the staff and that you know our LGBTQ plus and everyone has the right to feel safe at school. So these these um, support systems are put in place to make the students feel safe and that they can have open conversations with their um, with the teachers and uh, staff that's at the school. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when you and I first spoke, uh, it was in regards to disruptions of uh, school district meetings. I've seen others in Surrey. There have been similar situations in uh, the interior as well. Can you just, for our audience, just explain sort of what the school district and trustees have had to endure? Well, we, we were, we was, it was not pleasant to have, you know, quite a few, 15 to 20 people. There are other areas in the Fraser Valley that have had major um, issues with um, constant disruptions at meetings. And um, it's just they, they want their narrative heard. A lot of their narrative is coming out of the states, mm-hmm. um, as you, you know, uh, public has seen and, and you have read and stuff, you know, even with Chilliwack, they have the RCMP go in and look at their libraries and and make sure that there's no um, pornographic images or because that's what they're they're trying to tell us that that's what's happening and it is not true. So, you know, we talk about uh, America's culture wars seeping across the border. Do you see us getting beyond this, or do you see a moment where things may get um, even more polarized before things get better? Well. Uh, <laughs> I just came back from the States. I was down there for two weeks for a holiday. And and it is interesting when you talk to certain people just in general that you don't know and you just start conversations. And mm-hmm. and I, I think that I see it that we might um, get a little bit more polarized. Social media is, is not, you know, it's such a tool to use and it's such an advantage for a lot of us to use. But it can also be used for... Um, you know, to spread this kind of, um, 
you know, narrative and language that mm-hmm. um, people kind of cling on to it. And then it sort of spreads across, like with Action for Canada group, they're spread all the way across Canada. They And they're growing. And I think they're also growing in, in the States as well with those type of groups. So I think that it might be a little bit more polarizing for the next little while. It might get worse and Hopefully it gets better. That's my hope. I'm I'm a positive person, so I'm hoping that that it will get better. Yeah, I, I just worry that you know elected officials. It's it's a tough job, and you can never make all the public happy. But when you're not able to do your job, and that is run your meetings, uh, and you're disrupted openly, and some would argue by a vocal minority, uh, perhaps so, perhaps yep. not. But uh, whatever it may be, you should feel safe as as trustees and elected officials to do your job, and uh, and that's the hardest part when you start seeing not just uh, your school district but others. We're seeing. Uh, this verbal abuse uh, and threats uh, against school trustees for for doing their jobs and implementing policies implemented by the Ministry of Education, which of course comes from the provincial government. So, uh, you know, hopefully things get better faster, and, and that'd be best for all of us. That's for sure. Miss Carter, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Johal. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.